Squarespace is proud to support students and parents as they listen to Getting In. Learn how creating a personal website can help you stand out with colleges. Go to squarespace.com slash getting in. Getting In is also sponsored by audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com slash college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm your host, Julie Lithcott-Hames. And today we've got a quick update from a Getting In senior, and a little later we're going to talk about financial aid. According to the U.S. Department of Education, over 80% of college students at public and private institutions receive some form of aid, which includes federal grants, private grants, loans, and or scholarships. On today's show, we'll map out what seniors and their families need to be doing right now around financial aid. And we'll look ahead to how sophomores and juniors can approach the college admissions path with affordability in mind. Joining me today is getting an expert, Josh Steckel. As some of you will remember, Josh is the college counselor at the Brooklyn School for Collaborative Studies. He's also the author of a wonderful book called Hold Fast to Dreams, which follows low-income and first-generation students on the path to and through college. Welcome back, Josh. It's so great to be here, Julie. Before we get started on financial aid, though, let's listen to this update from Getting In Senior August Graves. In December, as many of you will remember, she got into the University of Glasgow. And earlier this month, she got accepted to Willamette University in Oregon. But August is still waiting to hear from several more schools. This week, she made a quick voice memo for us while running an errand at the mailbox on her block. Hi, guys. This is August. Um, I am doing a mailing thing for my mom, so I hope it's not too noisy or disruptive. I am waiting to hear from Binghamton University, which is a SUNY, and um, a lot of my friends have heard, not all of them, I I know some people who also have not heard yet, but a lot of my friends have heard, and a lot of them got in, which is great, but um, I haven't heard back yet, and I'm just kind of like wondering why. Um, that's pretty much where I'm at right now. Other than that, it's sort of like a waiting game where you just wait until the end of April or April 15th or whenever it's just to year back. And I'm thinking of maybe deferring a year and maybe taking a, um, a gap year or like a year to travel before I go to college. So I might do that. I'm still kind of like playing with the idea, but um, I'll let you guys know later on how that works out. Okay, so August is waiting to hear from SUNY Binghamton, but most of her friends have already heard from them. Josh, what's your experience with that? When peers hear from the same school at different times, should she follow up directly with SUNY Binghamton, or do you have other advice for her? She should definitely follow up with the college, and I think there's a really easy way to do that. Most colleges have online application portals where she can do a quick check just to make sure that her application is complete. That's the first thing that I'd want her to do. And then, yes, it's extremely common for cohorts of kids from the same school to be applying to the same colleges. And that can be complicated for reasons that aren't hard to understand. It is important for August to know that, especially with uh, public colleges and universities, uh, admissions decisions come out on a rolling basis. So it's often the case that kids who have applied earlier will hear earlier, as opposed to all of the decisions being released at the same time. I don't think that she has real cause to worry at this point, although... All of my kids are coming to me starting last week just being like, everybody's heard except me. And I think that perception is 
is not uncommon, and it's important for us to be sensitive to it. I see. Okay. And August is floating the idea of a gap year. What are your thoughts about that? I love the idea of gap years. They can be an extraordinary opportunity for a young person to um, grow and learn more about themselves and see more of the world and, and think more about their place in it and where they're headed. And so I think that for students who have the opportunity to consider a gap year and, and to do things that feel like a strong fit for them, I think it's I think it's a wonderful idea. I will say that not all of my students uh, will have the, the means economically to, to make a gap year uh, plausible, but we certainly often, um, with lots of my kids, are thinking about ways to spend a year um, after high school in a productive and meaningful way before college. You know, I love them too, and I'll just confess that I'm on the board of a gap year program. It's called Global Citizen Year, and one of the reasons I'm excited about it is they give a lot of financial aid, so it's mm-hmm. not an option only available to those who have the financial means. And it sends kids, you know, to Senegal, Brazil, Ecuador, or India for a year to do work and live with a family and grow some skills and grow a stronger sense of self. And And I think the hope is that you come back, you're ready to start college a little bit more familiar with your own self, what you want from college, what you think you want to try to make of your life. So in theory, I think you can make better choices once you're at college if you've had a, a substantial gap year experience between high school and college. I guess for me, when I heard August say it, I found myself wondering, well, I think the important question is why does she want it? If she's not feeling thrilled about the schools she's gotten admitted to and is sort of hoping to have a do-over and take the gap year in order to do something and then do a do-over with colleges, that's a different impetus for doing gap year than I really want to spend a year developing more maturity, developing some skills, developing a greater awareness of myself so that I can make more of college. You know, I think um, the schools she's gotten into, my point is, are are really wonderful choices. I was thrilled to learn more about Willamette because of August, and I've started looking into it in our family because I've got a kid who wants to be in the Pacific Northwest, and Willamette is one of those colleges that change lives, schools. So, you know, there are good reasons to do a gap year, and there are reasons that are just sort of in furtherance of a disappointment that you're feeling about a set of results coming in in the senior year. Yeah, I agree with you totally, Julie. And for what it's worth, I heard I heard that a little bit in August's voice when when she was saying it. And it's it's not uncommon for students um, as as results come in to kind of to, to to take those measurements and think about hmm, am I satisfied with how that's gotten and how it's gone and 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 a gap year is one is one way that students will articulate some sense of of disappointment with how the process is going. But August has great choices so far, and I'm just really. I'm thrilled for her, and I, I hope also that she has the opportunity to really dig in on some of those choices and, and think about ways that they could be great fits for her. And, you know, interestingly, one of our listeners wrote in to us about Willamette after hearing that August got admitted there. I was actually really touched by what she had to say. I'm going to read it. It's a listener named Kim. And Kim wrote, I attended Willamette University in Oregon, the school to which August was just admitted. I chose Willamette over Harvard, where I was also admitted. I loved my time at Willamette. The professors are approachable and caring, and students have the opportunity to pursue any of their interests. From there, I went on to receive a Ph.D. in English literature and language at the University of Michigan, fully paid for. So it provides its students a great education. Love that Kim is out there uh, fighting uh, for uh, for her alma mater, Willamette. Um, 
At the end of the day, August, if you're listening, as I'm sure you are, and for anyone else thinking about Willamette, this is about your decision. You've got to make a decision that's right for you. I think what we're just trying to do is is make sure you're aware of um, how lovely an option that school might be for you. And uh, don't discount it because, quote unquote, not everyone's heard of it. And finally, Josh, just tell us a little bit about the SUNY system. SUNY Binghamton, um, August mentioned, as a school she's waiting to hear from. I know our East Coast listeners, New York, certainly will be familiar with the SUNY system. But for those uh, outside of that area, give us just a bit of a descriptor about the SUNY system so people can be informed. SUNY Binghamton is one of the flagship institutions in the State University of New York system. So SUNY stands for State University of New York. And there's 64 campuses all over the state. And they're a wonderful public option for for residents of of New York State and also for out-of-state residents. But it's it's pretty common for for high-achieving students in in New York City schools to to include Binghamton and and other, other SUNY colleges on their lists. Fantastic. All right. And as August said, it's a waiting game right now. But for so many families, financial aid paperwork looms large during this waiting period. Josh, when you and I last spoke, Jonathan Diaz had not yet been accepted to Muhlenberg. So congratulations. Oh, thanks, Julie. I'm really uh, thrilled for Jonathan and for the other students of ours who who know where they're headed already. We also we had a student accepted to Hamilton last week and to Pitzer College in Southern California. Fantastic. It's got to be your favorite time of year, seeing all of this hard work turn into results and turn into a, an exciting path forward for your soon-to-be graduates. That is true. And it is also true that once they get admitted, they, they often have a lot more to do. Let's talk about that. Sounds like Jonathan got a generous aid package from Muhlenberg, but now he needs to plot out how he'll pay for the difference, right? Yes. So Jonathan got actually about uh, $50,000 a year in scholarship and grant funds. Wow. So those are, oh, my goodness. Those are funds that will go directly toward the cost of college and that he won't have any responsibility for repaying. Okay. Um, so that's really significant. Um, I think that what I was trying to communicate to you a second ago is that he still has, uh, he still has a bill left. And I think that yeah. even when colleges are extremely generous in that way, uh, for families that don't have a lot, even four or $5,000 can feel like a really significant chunk to pay. Absolutely. A significant barrier. Yeah. So then what, what does that mean for Jonathan? Well, so we do this kind of very careful net price analysis of his actual aid package so we can figure out exactly what the bill will look like and we can, we can itemize out what some of the other costs that are not included in the bill will be. Then we're making sure that he's, he's taken all of the steps that he needs to to find other sources of funding. So for him right now, that means that he's applying for a, a range of different scholarships. Uh, this last weekend, he interviewed for a scholarship through a foundation called the Los Padres Foundation. Um, we work with a, a local law firm called the Brian Cave Law Firm that awards four or $5,000 scholarships to our kids each year, and, and Jonathan's applying for that. The deadline's Thursday. Um, he's got a lot of work like that to do, and, and I just bumped into him on the subway, and he had a big smile, and he's just kind of, he's an amazing guy. He just kind of takes it all in, and he keeps, keeps putting one foot in front of the other. That's great. Okay, so for the rest of your seniors and all the seniors out there listening who've applied regular decision, this financial aid paperwork is really challenging. What precisely do they need to be doing right now to make sure all of those ducks are in a row? The number one thing that that kids and their families need to have gotten done is you have to get in a FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid. That as I as I think I shared in the last episode, that is like the master key to unlocking any kind of aid. 
And it's really important to get that in now if you haven't already. And it's really important to note that even if your family hasn't already filed taxes for 2015, you can submit a FAFSA using the, the year before, it's 2014's tax returns. And so getting that, that form in early is really important. And then once you have filed tax returns, it's really important to update the FAFSA and to finalize it to ensure that you've completed the form with the most recent year's tax returns. So for us, that's 2015. There's a really important new tool. It's, it's, it's not brand new. It's, it's more than two years old on the FAFSA called the Data Retrieval Link. And this enables students and families to actually link their FAFSA to their family's filing with the IRS. And that's, that's really important because it ensures that all the information that students and families have already entered in their tax filings migrates directly into the FAFSA. And it's also linked in a way that colleges can, can actually verify that, yes, this information has come directly from the IRS. So that's, those two pieces are, are extremely important. And then there's the other form, which is required by many, many private colleges called the CSS profile. And so it's, if students and families are applying to colleges where that form is required and they haven't already submitted Again, extremely important to get on top of that. And the CSS profile uses a service called IDOC, which is a way for students and families to upload all other required paperwork and documentation that is part of a financial aid application. And so it is important to uh, log into that platform and to upload the required documents. I'd say the big point that I have to say about financial aid is that it can be a lot, and there's a lot of follow-up. It's not typically I did the application and now I'm done. It's typically I, I submitted a FAFSA, I submitted a CSS, and based on the information I shared, there's this additional information that I now have to provide. And financial aid applications aren't complete until you've done all of the things that a college has asked for. Wow. It sounds so incredibly intricate and overwhelming. And your advice is, I'm sure, really golden right now to people who are struggling with the various components of, of the financial aid application and review process. So in just about a month, students will be getting acceptance letters and reviewing the aid packages. What's the most important thing to remember uh, when evaluating an aid package and comparing one school's aid package to another's? So the most important thing to remember in looking at an aid package is that you are looking for the net price. You are looking for what this college will cost to attend for you. And the reason that's so important is because when you look at a financial aid package, it's not super transparent. You can look at an aid package and you can see that a lot of different funding streams are itemized on this package. And each stream has a slightly different name. And it's not always clear when that's a free money, like grant or scholarship, or when it's a loan. When it's a loan, it's not always clear what kind of loan it is. And so it's really, really important from the start to make sure that you're able to identify this source of funding is free money. I'm not going to have to pay it back. This source of money is a government loan. This source of money would be a private loan. This source of money would be a student loan versus a parent loan, just so that it can be very clear what the actual build cost will be to you and your family. Different financial aid packages from different colleges look different. And so in comparing, we have to get to that baseline where you can say, this is going to be the net price uh, of attending for me. 
And if a family is finding this information to be terribly confusing and they can't answer those questions themselves, is it public or private? Is it a kid loan or a parent loan? Is there some kind of hotline or a place you can call or some kind of FAQ? How do you recommend people find the explanation about those things if it doesn't seem very evident from the information they've received from the colleges? So I'll give a super fast kind of key. Yeah or legend to reading financial aid packages. But before I do that, I'm going to say many, many financial aid officers think of themselves as counselors. And so if I'm stuck and I'm a kid or a parent, like I'm going to pick up the phone and I am going to call the financial aid office and I'm going to say, I need some help reading this and really understanding what I'm looking at. And that's that's important as a critical first step. So the, the first thing that I have kids do is I have kids figure out, well, which of these line items is free money? So anything that says scholarship or anything that says grant, that's a really good indicator that that is free money. Meaning you get it. It's a gift. You get it. It's a grant. You do not have to pay it back. You got it. And so we subtract that right away from the the total build cost. So we know what we're working from when we think about any other kinds of financial instruments that you can use to finance a college education. After that, then I'm going to parse out the loans. Student loans from the U.S. government are the safest. So if, if, if I'm working with a student and a student is going to take on some debt to finance their college education, we are starting with government student loans. And why is that? Government student loans have many more protections for borrowers. Protections in terms of caps on interest rate. Protections in terms of calendar for payback. Students often get a more significant grace period after graduating. They can apply for what's called forbearance if I'm unable to make a payment. And probably even more importantly, there are many more forgiveness programs. So for me, for example, when I began working in the New York City public schools, all of the loan balance that I had with a loan program called the Perkins Loan Program were forgiven. And so that $7,000 that I'd borrowed in order to go to Duke was, was canceled, which was terrific. And here in New York State right now, the Governor Cuomo just passed legislation called the Get On Your Feet Program, which for recent college graduates who are struggling to make loan payments, uh, the state will actually pay up to 24 months of, uh, of the student's loan payments uh, after graduating from college. Wow. That is fantastic. So loans from the federal government are the best slash safest for the reasons you've just articulated. Does this mean you steer your own students away from the private loans? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, There's a few different reasons. The first thing to note is that in general, there's two different kinds of government loans. They're called subsidized and unsubsidized loans. Subsidized means that while the student is in college, the government is paying the interest on the loan. So if you borrowed $3,500 in a subsidized Stafford loan, when you graduate, that is still $3,500. An unsubsidized loan accrues interest as soon as it's dispersed. Most private loans are unsubsidized. So that's the first point. The other is that they're often higher interest. Uh, There are no limits on the amounts that students can borrow. They're not beholden to state regulations. I just think that they're much less... They're much less safe. They're more risky uh, tools to finance a college education. And and I just am not super comfortable with students borrowing over certain debt levels. And what do you mean by debt levels? First, for my students, I mean that the maximum that they can borrow in government student loans. So as a freshman, students can't borrow more than $5,500 from a, a lo- the loan program called the Stafford Loan Program. And we typically, especially for low-income students, we're not going to go higher than that. If I have a student who's thinking they're going to borrow more than $10,000 per year to go to a college... 
I want to I want to help that student think about whether or not that's actually the right choice. I think fit has a lot to do with affordability as well as all the other things we think about when we think about how to find a good match for a student's personality. That makes a whole lot of sense. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk scholarships. And Josh, I'd love to explore some of the strategies that have worked for your students when applying for scholarships. Absolutely, Julie. Fantastic. So Josh will share scholarship tips in just a minute. But first, a few words from our sponsors. Squarespace is proud to support students and parents as they listen to Getting In. Whether you see your future as a clear path or a blank slate, with Squarespace, you're off to a beautiful start. Squarespace sites look professionally designed, regardless of skill level, and there's no coding required. With intuitive and easy-to-use tools, Squarespace will even give you a free domain if you sign up for a year. And when you sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code GETTINGIN and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. Create a website that reflects your best skills and talents, because when you start on the right foot, you can go anywhere. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com slash getting in. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Getting In is also sponsored by audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices, on iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book you might try out from Audible is The Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's an intimate look at the Supreme Court justice and how she changed the world. It highlights Ginsburg's battles against sexism early in her career, her legal innovations, and her work on the nation's highest court. If you want to listen to The Notorious RBG or many other books, Audible has it. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com slash college. So Josh, before the break, I mentioned scholarships. There are thousands of them out there. How do you steer your students towards scholarships they could realistically be awarded? I think that the very best advice to start for students and families is that scholarship searches are most successful when you start with organizations that you already have connections with. It's really important to think mm. about, to think local, to think about local religious organizations, unions, local foundations, local nonprofits, to speak with staff or your counselor at your school to find out what scholarship students have won in the past. For us, I'd mentioned earlier that, that Jonathan is applying for a scholarship with a local law firm that... Uh, every year we place interns at, and their partners have decided to invest in our students, and it's been great. critical. And it means that instead of sending applications kind of off into the ether and just kind of crossing your fingers and hoping, we know that four of our kids out of, you know, how 50 kids that apply are going to win this really substantial amount of funds. And that's that piece is really important, and it's it's what makes the scholarship search so hard. When people talk about scholarships, they're like, there's so much money out there and you can win a scholarship for anything. And I, I can't tell you how many times kids come to me and say, Josh, I, I heard that I could win a scholarship for being left-handed or I heard that, <laughs> you know, I could win a scholarship for this. And, and even if all of those things were true, what it does for kids and their families is that it, it really just kind of amps up the anxiety. How am I going to get this? What are the rules? I don't understand. Um, and so scholarship searches are best when they're clearly defined, they're more narrow, and you're, you're looking for scholarship pools 
where you already have some connections and you have a sense that the, that the pool is smaller. There are some exceptions to that. There are some really important state and national scholarship competitions that um, do really amazing work. There's, there's scholarships that our kids apply to every year. The thing about the local scholarships is that they're small. There are smaller amounts of money that um, are very meaningful. They're often $500, $1,000, $1,500, and they, they, they make a really significant dent in students' bills. Um, the scholarships that are much larger are those national scholarships with much more competitive pools. And again, schools often have a pretty good sense of, of which scholarship programs they've had success with in the past. We participate in the Posse Scholarship uh, Program every year. We participate in the Jackie Robinson Foundation Scholarship every year, Gates Millennium. And if we have one or two kids who win, then that's that's a good thing. That's a great year for us. So those scholarships you just mentioned, Gates, Jackie Robinson, Posse, and I'm sure there are many others. Tell us a little bit more about them. Posse is a, is a wonderful program that does amazing work to kind of rethink the admissions process and identify dynamic and high-achieving leaders. Uh, Posse is open to students in public schools in a, in a range of urban centers all across the country, Los Angeles, New York City, uh, Miami, Chicago, Boston, Washington, D.C., and is a terrific program that uh, awards winners a full tuition scholarship and really powerful support structures as students uh, make their way through college. Um, Jackie Robinson and Gates are, are two of, of a, a small range of scholarships that target low-income students of color and have had really powerful and terrific outcomes um, for a long time. Fantastic. And is there a resource that people can go to with the internet? I think sometimes we think there's a list for that. There's a magic repository of all the information we're looking for. What are some good websites or online resources that a student could peruse beyond those local organizations that should be their first stop when it comes to seeking scholarship money? Is Are there some good resources online where you can begin to investigate some of these national scholarships that can be trusted? There are, and, and there's there's a wide range, and I think that I I want to list them just with the caveat that it is. I think it's important to start local. I think people often do it the other way around, and it can yeah. be pretty overwhelming. FastWeb is one that folks uh, refer out a lot. Scholarships.org. Um, there's a new one called Scholar Snap uh, that has partnered with the Common App. There's a wonderful uh, site called College Greenlight uh, that that does both scholarship search and college match. So there's a pretty wide range of uh, scholarship databases out there. Sally May runs one. Again, I think they can identify a wide range of scholarships where they meet criteria for eligibility. But it's really important to start with with local organizations and local listings. Start local. Yeah. I get it. I totally get it. And, of course, when you're applying for scholarship, you have to write an essay, an added joy of the process, another essay. Can students repurpose a college application personal essay for their scholarship essay? Yes, 100%. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that that's really, really important that kids know they rarely have to reinvent the wheel for essays around scholarship applications. Once my kids have gotten through the actual college application process, they typically have written enough to be able to tailor one of those pieces to any possible scholarship question that they're going to get. Fantastic. Last weekend, the New York Times ran a feature about an organization called Raise Me with a website, raise.me. I hadn't heard of it before, but I was intrigued. Raise Me is a free site where students can enter details about their high school achievements, including grades, and they immediately earn scholarship credits. For example, $150 for an A in biology. This is all contingent upon admission. 
They don't need to write essays or get teacher recommendations, and about 100 colleges are currently participating in Raise Me. Josh, I presume you were not new to Raise Me, given what you do for a living. What do you think of Raise Me as a way of earning scholarship money? Raise Me is relatively new, so I don't know everything that I would like to know about Raise Me. Um, What I can say first is that it's part of a movement to think harder about what folks call micro-scholarships, just little kind of injections of funds that can make a big difference. And I think that as an idea, that's a great idea. It is often the case, especially for um, the student population that I'm working with, that small amounts of money can be the difference between students being able to continue uh, with college and, and not. And so that's great. I am a little bit more skeptical about behavioral incentives that look like this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you to do something that we want you to do. I think that if this is a way for students to be rewarded for things that they're already doing, that feels a little bit different to me. Different in a bad way or a good way? I couldn't quite tell. We don't want this to be the reason that students are working to do well in school, to um, to feel like that they have access to the funding that they need to, to go to college. It's a, it's a good resource. The things that I don't know that would be really important are students from all high schools able to uh, enroll and participate in Raise Me? What are the colleges that are partnering and what are the conditions of their partnership? So take it with a grain of salt, but it's out there. Take a look at it. Uh, For those who who think it might be appealing, um, definitely it's in the mix, but it's not the dominant paradigm when it comes to financial aid. All right. Now it's time for listener questions. We got this multi-part question from listener Matthew Littlejohn, who has a daughter in the ninth grade. We're splitting it up so we can digest each part. Here's part one. My family's in a position where we're not really poor enough to get major discounts, and we're not rich enough, unfortunately, to be able to easily cover sixty grand a year. We saved as aggressively as we can in 529s, but I'm worried it's not enough. How can we avoid borrowing against our home or dipping into retirement? We don't want to have our daughter be burdened with debt when she goes to college. Josh, what do you think? Important question faced by many, many families. I think the the quick and important answer is that it's it's important to think about public colleges and universities. I think that the $60,000 price tag uh, is a number that, that we see a whole lot, but it actually is, is a lot less common than you'd think based on the amount of times that we're seeing it as the figure at, at, that, that we're working with when we talk about the cost of college. It is uh, alarming that many colleges do cost more than $60,000 a year, but it's very, very important uh, for students and families to know that there are, are many outstanding uh, choices that, that cost significantly less. And uh, my, the first place I'd go with this family is to suggest that they look at some of the really wonderful public colleges and universities in their state. As well as public community colleges and junior colleges where you're going to be paying far less but often get a fantastic education and then you're able to transfer to that more expensive four-year school where you've already got two years under your belt. A lot of families make that a really affordable way of, you know, helping their kid through college. I also would add that there are a lot of private schools, you know, outside of your own state that the more selective they are, the more money they have. If your kid's profile is fairly high achieving, it may be that there's a private school out there somewhere that actually offers more aid than you realize. That That is, they will cover you even though you feel that you're not in that particular um, group that gets all the aid. It may be that you are able to get some. Don't overlook that possibility. It cannot hurt to ask. 
Okay, here's the next part of the question. My daughter's a freshman, and my understanding is that the FAFSA form is going to re- require uh, taxes submitted for the year prior to the application. So my question is, is my daughter's sophomore year the last year we can do something to impact our aid package? And or are there good people to turn to and talk to about this to kind of help your ability to get more aid? Okay, Josh, what do you think? So I think it's important for the, the listener to know that the way that the way that FAFSA works and the way that the supplemental form I've referred to in the past called the CSS profile, the way those two forms work is that you have to file them every year. When uh, the listener's daughter is applying to be a freshman in college, the family will have to file them that year. And then when she is moving on to her sophomore year, they'll have to file them again and, and so on until she graduates. And part of the reason for that is that families' income situations change from year to year. And in theory, when colleges are doing things right, uh, financial aid packaging will be adjusted. If a student's family has greater need from one year to the next, uh, they should be getting more support. If they have less need, uh, they'll get a little less. And so I think that um, this particular uh, listener's anxiety about what, what can I do right now is totally understandable, but it is probably not focused on, on things that are actually going to make a difference. What they have done that's really... Um, fantastic is that they've been saving really aggressively in a 529. And that is, that's one of the most uh, important ways to, to do what you can to, to shore up the prospect of affordability uh, for college. Okay. And here's part three of the question. And then um, I've been looking around and trying to figure out how to really get a handle on what the real cost of different schools are. I really want to avoid having her or apply to schools that we just can't afford. And it seems like the cost is just kind of based on income levels. Um, and it's very confusing to figure out how much we'll end up paying. This is that net cost to you question you, you referred to earlier. Josh, what do you think here? Yeah, so the, the tool that this family wants to use and that, that families really ought to use and that colleges have gotten a lot better about is a tool called a net price calculator. So almost all colleges now offer this tool on their financial aid website. And what it will do is it will ask families a whole bunch of questions that mirror the questions that they'll be asked when they complete a financial aid application. And it will um, offer an estimate about what the actual net price will be. And this is what this this listener is looking for, is to try to... These will not be uh, definitive estimates. They will be estimates. And it's possible, as you suggested, that a college will do better then they then they estimate in the net price calculator. But if if this listener is looking to get a sense of like, well, what what am I actually talking about at this college that costs sixty thousand dollars? What is my price tag actually going to be? Then the net price calculator is where they need to start. I would also suggest just as a you know to get a framework, using the the, the federal government's new college scorecard is a great way to just get a sense of of what the average financial aid packaging looks like at any given college, and also. To get that leverage of figuring out, well, on average, what what kind of debt are students leaving this college with? And what kinds of employment are they getting once they're out in the workforce? Okay. This stuff is so complicated, so intricate, and so important. And I think the the listener's last question really gets at the delicate nature of having these kinds of conversations with your own kid. Let's listen to the final part of the question. And finally, and most importantly, how do you think we should handle talking about the finances with my daughter? Um, I want her to really uh, consider the, the, the finances and cost her decision, but I don't want to limit her too much. Um, and I would really appreciate any help on how best to manage the issue with her. Josh? I think that this is probably the hardest part of this question. Yeah. And I will say that in my work with students, it's it's one of the things that often they feel the most sensitive about. I think that students have often a, a clear sense of, you know, the injustice of, well, I can't. 
I can't think about this place because I'm not sure that we can afford it. And that's in part about how this process works. Like there's this foregrounding of the admission side of things and you do all this work to get in. And that's sort of separate from the question of whether you can afford it. And it's just really important that we think about these two things as part of the same process. <laughs> it's certainly the case for my students that if they get into a place they can't afford to go, They're not going. it doesn't really matter that that's they got right. in. And so, um, so this is tricky. And I'm going to say that I think here, you know, without sounding cliched, I, I do think that honesty is really important. I don't think that When I talk to my children, I don't think that I'll necessarily give them the nuts and bolts details of the numbers, but I will want to be very clear with them uh, that affordability and admission are are part of the same process and that that we have to be reasonable in, in thinking about what choices are going to ensure that not only uh, are you going to have a really rich and exciting and wonderful educational experience, but that you're also not going to be leaving with significant debt and that as a family, we're not going to be making sacrifices that that put us at risk. Yeah, we love you and we support you and we believe in you. And it's important to be having those conversations realistically with kids and for them to feel that it's not about lack of support for them in terms of believing in them, but it's the financial reality and the very practical matter that you want to position them to start their adult life with as little debt as possible. And the best way to do that is to go with a more affordable school, even if it wasn't the school that was at the top of your list. Kudos to this listener for for working so early to try to ensure that that his daughter has a range of really affordable choices and that they can do what they can as a family to make that possible for her. Absolutely. So kudos to you, Matthew Littlejohn, and kudos to you, Josh Steckel. Thanks so much for joining me today, man. It's always great to hear your voice across these wires. Oh, I'm so happy to have had the chance to talk to you, Julie. Listeners, we love hearing from you. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at gettinginpod. That's all one word, gettinginpod. Please keep sending your voice memos because we'd like to hear your voice. You can send us emails too. Our email address is gettingin at slate.com. And there's always our trusty hotline where you can leave a voicemail. That number is 929-999-4353. And if you can, please leave us a comment on iTunes. It helps other people discover our show. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our producer. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Julie Lithcott-Hames. And remember, it's not just about getting in. It's about finding the right fit.